0: our true goal here was to tell the stories of these women that we had known over a 25-year period from a place of both history and intimacy. And to hear their stories and to be able to share their stories with readers gives people a glimpse into these ordinary women's lives. I mean, some of them are superstar, rock star, ambitious people. Some of them are less so. And We think it may happen to resonate with some other women too, who consider themselves career ambitious, who are educated and who are kind of struggling just to get it all done and figure it all out. This is Women Killing It. Women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard.
1: Today's guests are Elizabeth Wallace and Hannah Shank, who are the authors of The Ambition Decisions, What Women Know About Work, Family, and the Path to Building a Life. Congratulations, you guys. You are killing it. Thank, Thank you. you. So you are my first returning guests that I've had on the podcast. I talked to Liz and Hannah back in episode 44 and 45. We had so much to talk about that we turned it into two episodes. That was after they had published the ambition interviews in The Atlantic, and that article went viral and led them to expanding on it and doing a deeper dive with their new book, The Ambition Decisions. So um, for those who haven't listened to the past episodes, although I recommend to everyone that they go back and listen, could you set up how you started off on the interviews of your former college friends and, and how it all started? So, this project
2: really started with a midlife crisis, as many good things do. We were both in a place where we were really just feeling stuck with our careers and with our parenting and not really sure how to move forward and just knowing that we we weren't achieving everything that we felt like we wanted to, but didn't really know how to move from that place. And we talked to each other about it and remembered that we were friends from college. And so kind of thought back to the fact that our friends from college had all seemed really ambitious back when we knew them. And we thought, let's go talk to some of them and see if they have figured out how, to like, is this just us that <laughs> we can't really, like, you know, we're in this spot where everything just seems really hard. Um, maybe there's some mythic woman out there who has figured all of it out and we can go find her. So that was kind of the start of the project. We started with just some initial kind of informal conversations with friends from college who, at that point, we hadn't talked to in 20 years. And those conversations were so interesting that we decided to expand into doing multiple formal interviews with everybody who had been in our graduating class in our sorority.
1: And then when you started doing those interviews, you started to see some patterns that were emerging, right? And that's what you wrote about in the articles and then expanded on in the book. And we talked about this before, but you divided everyone into kind of three categories, right? There were the high achievers, the opt-outers, and the flex lifers, right? I think, you know, a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast and, and certainly myself, I think, fall in that middle category of flex lifers. And one thing I think was really interesting is that you said that of the groups that you looked at, the group that seemed less kind of conflicted or most satisfied was actually the high achievers. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes, we we did find that. And we think that was because they were comfortable putting their career ambition front and center in their lives. And if they were parents, and many of them were, that didn't mean that they didn't prioritize parenting, but that they considered their career something that they essentially would not compromise on, that they would seize every promotion, every opportunity, even if it meant moving their family across the country or for one of our friends across the world. They would hire the child care they needed to be available to their demanding jobs, and they would would say yes to every opportunity to ascend and that the rest of their lives sort of would be built around that. And they they gained a lot of satisfaction from that, enough so that that made the other compromises that they had chosen to make worthwhile.
1: And it's interesting because it seems like maybe being a high achiever and having those kind of clear priorities about the career puts you in kind of a less of a constant juggling state as the flex lifers, right? A less of a conflicted state. And it makes me think about men because men are socialized by our society that their value is primarily in breadwinning, and women are socialized that their value is primarily in caregiving. You know, with general strokes, these are the, the language and, the and you know, the broad pressures that are put on us based on gender in this society. And so I wonder, when we're talking all the time about balancing and juggling and it seems to be more of a women issue, even though there's a lot more men now that want to have more active roles as fathers than, say, in my generation. And so I wonder, is it easier to be a man because they're lacking this struggle that we constantly are having about, do I prioritize my career? Do I not take this opportunity? Am I going to be a bad mom if I go for this thing? Like, there seems to be less of that struggle. And I wonder if it's because they're more if there, if you think that there's an alignment almost between the high achiever category and the role that maybe society puts men in, mm-hmm. there's definitely a whole
2: second book in here where we go and interview 43 men and ask them about that. <laughs>
1: there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, if
2: somebody wants to fund us to do that, we'd be more than happy to do that. I'd, I think it's hard to like, we can't really speak for how men feel about things because we haven't, you know, beyond anecdotally what we've observed in our lives. Um, I will say that. Since we wrote the Atlantic series, and in between writing that and writing the book, this phrase, emotional labor, has become popular. And it's a real thing that affects women to a degree that it doesn't men. And I will give an example from today, which is that um, we are in the middle of doing book promotion. I have been somewhat lax in my day job while we've been doing the book promotion, and I'm, like, needing to get back to that this morning, needing to kind of promote a million things, and woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning and thought, my son is going away to sleepaway camp, and we have not bought him stamps. So I need to—so, like, I got up, and I made a list of, like, we need to buy him stamps. We need to make sure he has an address book. My husband is not doing—like, that is just not a thing that would ever happen to him, ever, and he is a very present parent. So— I think that there is just a piece of the way that women function that we think about these things. And I was thinking about the fact that one of our interviewees, the first interview that we did with her, she's a high achiever. Um, She is also married to a high achiever, so they're one of our few power couples that we found. And we asked her what things her husband did, and she said, he's very good at getting things. Whatever you need, he will get it. And at the time, I thought, that's the weirdest thing to say. Like, I can't, what does that even mean to be good at getting things? But I've been thinking about it a lot lately because I think, like, so this morning I woke up and I texted my husband and I was like, can you get stamps? Because <laughs> he's the get. Like, that. that is actually his role. My role is I think about the fact that we need the stamps and then he goes and gets them. So I think that. For whatever
0: reason, it's ridiculous, right? It's so funny, um, and it's funny because it didn't—it didn't strike me as strange at all that she said, because I was like, "Oh yeah, no, I know it. He he gets he gets the milk if they run out of milk. He gets the wine if they run out of wine. He gets he goes and picks up the takeout."
2: Yes, but I mean, and that's totally how we function too. I just never really thought about it, but I think also in part since writing this, I feel more comfortable with like being like, well, I'm thinking about all this stuff, so I don't feel bad that, like, he's doing the getting because, like, I think he likes to do it. That's, like, his—that's his part. So that was a very circuitous answer to the fact that I just think some men are just never going to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and think we need to buy stamps. It's just not going to happen.
1: I totally agree about this emotional labor thing, and the thing that I find really frustrating about emotional labor is that it's invisible. My husband and I, like a lot of couples, spend a lot of time kind of— keeping score. Like, what have you done? What have I done? And I try not to do that. But he'll he will often feel like he's doing everything. And he doesn't understand all the things that I'm doing that are invisible. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and so the burden of having to think about everything is actually a big burden. Right. You know, it's like being the CEO. They say women's the CEO of the family. Right. Giving orders to someone else is actually the, like, higher level, more involved role, figuring out what needs to happen. But what do you think, Liz? Do you think that um, the high achievers were kind of falling in that kind of less of a struggle about, like, what is my role here? Like, you know, the flex lifers are more given into to I have to do a good job at both of these things, at caregiving, and I must not prioritize my breadwinning over my caregiving.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think in that way they they did – sort of describe themselves, I think, whether they felt this way or not, I'm not sure, but more traditionally as male figures in the workplace because they do know their place, their place, they've ascribed their place to themselves, if that's the right way of saying it. Many of them were the breadwinner of the family or the higher earner of the family. They did not have the option in many cases uh, nor the desire in many cases, in many other cases, to scale back their careers because they had a financial responsibility to their families. And also, you know, because this is how it works, they become accustomed to, as we were talking about before, they become accustomed to living a certain way and supporting their families a certain way economically. And also – that they get a lot of accolades professionally. And as they get more promotions and higher titles and more money and more prominence in their field, that that's attractive and that's validating. And if that is something that's important to you, recognition in your field and validation professionally, and you keep getting it, that is an ambition feeder. And so why would you want to drop out of that? Although we did have women who did after, after many years. But yes, I do think that part of why they felt conflicted about it was because their role was necessary and also rewarding. Um, Not to say that those who were parents weren't rewarded by their parenting as well, but the work rewards seems to me from my perspective, and this is totally my perspective, were were maybe more more black and white and easier, more quantifiable, you know, by salary and by seeing ticks up on your resume and, and additional awards and things. Whereas the rewards of parenting are much harder to quantify or, or— Much less tangible. Yes, yes. Right.
1: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. They seem to come at the end of a life rather than, <laughs> the, end, than the
0: end of a day. Right, and <laughs> while
2: well, nobody's giving you a performance review. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. In fact, quite the contrary. <laughs> right. You are the worst parent I have ever met in my entire life.
1: And I guess also in the capitalistic society, right, those work rewards are more in line with what society tangibly rewards, right? A society doesn't give out awards to um, Best Mother of the Year, although we all like to say that we wouldn't be in the running for that anyway, (laughs) right? You know, that's something that I think every— have you heard women say that self-deprecating comment? Like, oh, I guess I'm getting the Mother of the Year award. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Whenever we fail.
2: Well, or all the other things of, like, you, you know, made sure your children had the appropriately sized underwear today. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know?
1: They changed their underwear. Good job. (laughs) Right, right. So, another thing that I thought was really interesting, we talked about a little bit last time that in our last episodes, but this whole role of your partner in your career. And we had spoken about how there's kind of an ambition cap in marriage, and you guys only came across a couple couples that were power couples, right? Usually there was one partner that had the more demanding career and another one that played a more supportive role. So the interesting thing that you mentioned in the book, then, is that actually when you're thinking about your spouse and selecting your spouse, you might want to think in what role do you want to play. Mm-hmm. So is it that if you want to have an ambitious career and you think you your career is really important to you, that maybe you should be seeking out someone who's less focused on their career?
2: Yeah, so we are not the first people to come across this finding. Um, we read a lot of other people who came before us in writing this book. And one of our favorite things that we read was this article by Linda Hirschman that came out maybe 10, 15 years ago, where she wrote about how the best thing that women can do for their careers is to marry a spouse with an ideological commitment to feminism. Um, what we talk about in the book is that, you know, the way that she wrote it, it kind of sounds like you want to find someone who has read a lot of early feminist texts and is, like, you know, well-versed on (laughs) whatever, smashing the patriarchy. Um, But that in practice what that looks like is somebody who values your career equal to or above their own and basically puts their their money where their mouth is and, and does the things that you know, like when you have all the things that happen to working people and happen more and more as you move up the ladder, like you have a last-minute business trip, or you now have a 7 a.m. a.m. breakfast meeting, or you can't, you know, be there for the kids today because some other, you know, you have a some other work emergency. Those are the things that As you move up in the work world, you need to be more and more available. That's just how work functions today. And if you have a partner who will pick up that slack and will say, okay, you go do what you need to do because that's important to me, to you, and to us as a family, that that is one of the keys to success. And it's much different than having somebody who's like, you know, go get them, honey, and also what's for dinner? So... We dig into that a little bit more, you know, in the Atlantic series, we talked about how there was this, there is this ambition cap, um, and then in the book go into a lot deeper kind of some of why that exists, and yes, the fact that if you know 100%, and, you know, I think that might be a hard thing to know, but if you are somebody early on in your career who is thinking about that you want to have kind of a no-holds-barred career and are very ambitious, that— it's not a bad idea to look for a partner who is maybe not as ambitious.
1: Another point that you guys had made when I saw you at the book launch was that sometimes things can change, right? It's not like you have to be a flex lifer forever. I know I've heard women. I had Sally Krawcheck on this show, and she talked about how when her kids went to college, then she was able to kind of become that high achiever. I mean, she was always a high achiever, but um, was able to kind of have a second life in her career. When you're basically, you know, those obligations and, and that time, those time constraints are gone. But I think you also said that you didn't see partners making a lot of switching back and forth in your
0: sample, or, d- or did you? I wouldn't say we saw it a lot. We did have a, several cases of it. Um, one couple we talk about early in the book, in the marriage chapter, I think it was, who the, woman in the partnership had been a junior rabbi for a number of years, and she had three children with her husband. And when her children were younger, that was a good job for her because it had more flexible hours. She had to do less speaking engagements, less appearances, and less travel than the senior rabbi. And her children, well, there's some of them are still young, but she kind of woke up one day and said, you know, I actually think I really want more. I really want to make changes for myself. I really want to be a senior rabbi. And so went on a job search, and it took two years, I think. It's kind of like working in academia. And she got offered a job and then had to sit down and have a serious discussion with her partner about how he was going to become the more primary fallback caregiver He was going to be the one to relieve the babysitter at night. He was going to be the one to be home to make dinner and help with homework pretty much every night because her schedule was going to be a lot more demanding and would start involving more travel. And that happened, you know, 15 years into their marriage. And then somebody else we talk about later in the book who had been a teacher and a writer and an actor earlier in her life, in her 20s, she got married had three children and became a stay-at-home mom for 14 years but had always dreamt of being a writer and a theater person and continued to write throughout her unpaid labor of being a mother but had kind of small jobs here and there. But she kind of kept one foot in writing and also got a graduate degree in film – And then just last year, the last time we talked to her, she got a tenure-track position as a screenwriting professor. So um, there were at least two prominent examples of ambition switchers across the book. And that point about her keeping her
1: kind of toe in it I think is so important. And that's what I've heard from – I've had a couple women on this show who specialize in – helping women return to work. And I think that is just such a key thing for people who are going to opt out of the paid workforce to do. Is I know it sounds hard <laughs> with everything if you're the primary caregiver, but keeping that toe in can make such a difference in terms of being able to transition back into paid work.
2: Well, and one thing we just um – did an event earlier this week where we got a lot of questions on this very topic around. There was a career coach in the audience, and so I don't know if she was promoting her <laughs> services or, but also was genuinely interested in the topic. And one thing that we talked about there, and then also, and also in the book, is this idea that you need to invest in your career. And there's one woman in the book who talks about how early on in her career, she other women gave her the advice that she should pay for the child care now, even though it was an exorbitant expense and, you know, felt like at the time financially it didn't make sense, but that if she looked at it as an investment in her career, that it would pay off down the road. And for her, it paid off very well. She's in finance. So, you know, in general— we found that women do this childcare calculus. And especially if you are primarily staying at home and looking at, like, picking up some freelance, you know, hourly freelance work here and there, and you would need to, like, pay a sitter to do it. And you're like, I barely make enough to cover the cost of the sitter. We heard that time and time again. I barely made enough to cover the cost of the sitter. But that it is so so worth it. Not only because if you then go back, you then have a better option of going back full time, but also because um, over time you you will make more to cover <laughs> to cover the cost of the sitter. You know, if you keep working, but if you step away entirely, and we have a few, we have an example of this in the book. It's harder. It's much harder to
1: come back in. Plus, it's also I think important for like allocating the financial risk of your family. Right, like if your spouse is to lose their job, then if you still have a foot in even if it doesn't feel like it makes financial sense, you could be the one that goes and becomes a primary caregiver, takes on a more intense role.
0: I was just thinking about a uh, another stay-at-home mom who had previously worked in finance, and her husband worked in finance, and they also had three children, and she became a stay-at-home mom but was really not satisfied as a stay-at-home mom and really wanted to get back to work. But during the financial crisis, she was— very concerned that her husband was going to lose his job, and she said, I need to get back into the workforce because if his firm comes crashing down, I need to be able to support the family too. And interestingly, she said, I have to really, like, go big or go home. I have to get a big enough job. I have to make a big enough salary where I can cover the cost of childcare for my three kids. Um,
2: I also, I think that she was in an interesting situation because because she'd been a stay-at-home mom. Her husband was used to her taking care of everything. So I think it was partially go big or go home because she felt like she needed to cover the cost of childcare, but also go big or go home to make the point to her husband that this was a real job and to try to get him to cover. And and
0: also get more support in the way of maybe like having somebody help clean the house once or twice a month, you know, carpool, like people to drive their kids around because they don't live in New York City and they can't take the subway. Um, but yes, <laughs> right, showing making the point though that that a higher salary is more validating for a job than if you're making a yes. tenth of the cost of your a, a tenth of the salary of your of your spouse. But I was thinking about
2: so the story that you talked about earlier about the screenwriter who was married to the finance guy who lost his job. One thing that she talked about was that she now works the same number of hours that he used to work and brings in whatever it is, one-sixteenth of the salary, and that there are a lot of feelings around that for her and for her husband, the fact that he now is doing, you know, he's the primary caregiver now because he's at home because he doesn't have a job, and she is... Supporting the family. I mean, they also, you know, because he was in finance, they're not living solely off of her salary, but they may at some point down the road. And it's a whole different financial ballgame. So she had some guilt around the fact that she works so much and brings in so little. He maybe has some resentment around that. But it's also, you know, to her credit, the fact that she was able, after so many years out, you know, she did keep a foot in and was able to at least go back in some capacity.
1: That's an interesting thought, this go big or go home, because I know I've certainly struggled back and forth because I've done the scaling back and then the salary is so low that everything else is a struggle. And then sometimes you think, would it just be easier if I just got one of these jobs that would pay me a lot more, but then I wouldn't get home until late at night? And, you know, there's definitely this most commonly in our working world, there's this tie between salary and inflexibility and long hours. But is it possible? Have you found people in your sample? Like, I still hold out hope that somehow I could figure out how to make a good money and still have a good quality of life. I haven't figured it out yet, but (laughs) I haven't given up on figuring it
2: out. I mean, I think it's a hard thing to judge because the people who we interviewed who make a big salary and have big jobs don't typically say, I work all the time and it sucks and I hate it. <laughs> but we we did interview one person who is very high up at a bank who talked about how now that she is a senior person, she's able to set her own schedule. And she talked about, actually, that she now coaches her kids. Um, I think she has two kids, right? And coaches mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. Coach their math team for however many years they were all in elementary school or middle school or wherever it was. Um,
0: Three, because Three, they 3 They
2: three-peated, Yes. <laughs>
0: She she pushed them. She seems yeah. she's a little
2: ambitious. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. So she talked about that she, for the most part, if she wants to be somewhere, if she wants to like you know leave work early so she can watch somebody in the Christmas pageant. She can do that. We don't live there with her, so we don't know what <laughs> you know. If she's like also working until midnight most days. Um, I mean, I think generally. The construct of today's working world is that people work a lot. And if you have a bigger job, you work more. I mean, I, we certainly didn't find anyone who was like, yeah, I'm part-time and I make a lot of money. Darn. <laughs> I think we'd all yeah. take that job. so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My parents managed to do, like, have a good quality of life and uh, make a good living. And I'm like, why don't I just follow their example? Instead, I did the exact opposite. Um I mean, and I, I will add that,
2: like, obviously this is a—this a, discussion comes from a, a point of privilege that, like, it's nice to have these kinds of opportunities and choices, but that it is certainly that something that we saw people wrestle with, you know, this exact conversation, and this is why—what makes things so difficult for flex lifers um, is this constant ongoing churn of, should I be making more money, but then I'll have less time, but then we could— pay for more things, but then I, you know, won't be there to meet the school bus and on and on and on. So. Right. On and on and, <laughs> on and on and on.
1: Never ends, right? This issue of it being from a point of privilege, we talked that, about that a lot or a bit in our last interviews, how, you know, you're starting with, you're interviewing women who have gone to Northwestern. And you did say that they're from um, a diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, but just having that degree, that that's a, a point of privilege, right? But- I know that whenever I've written something like that, like I, you know, I wrote an article about how um, it was called uh, "My luckiest career break was when my husband took the lead at home," and I got a lot of, you know, comments. It was in Slate, and there was comments, "Oh, rich people complaining," you know. <laughs> and so the thing is, you know, have you gotten that criticism and about you know writing about, especially at such a difficult time in our in our history and everything, to be writing about place of privilege, the thing that I always say, like, if the privileged women can't do it, then there's not hope for anybody, right? <laughs> like, um, But what if, you know, how have, have you had to deal with that issue, or what's the challenge of writing from this perspective?
0: The challenge of writing from this perspective is that you— if you have a a sort of quote-unquote niche group, and I would say 43 women is by—I don't know if that's a niche group, but it's a small set— of people that we talked to. And when we started talking to our friends, this project started as a way for us to answer questions that we were having with each other and in our own minds about our, our own, what we saw as our own ambition and career shortcomings. And we decided to talk to some other friends that we had known at that time when we were in college together. We were College roommates, our senior year. And we decided to go back and ask them some questions that we had asked each other. They were there when we had these original conversations about our ambition that we remembered, that we reflected upon. And when we started those conversations, we at that point didn't have any intention, frankly, of writing a book or thinking that we were gathering data in any way. And it was only after we had interviewed maybe half of our subjects and certainly by the time we got to 43 that we heard that we heard so many themes that resonated with us and with other women that we talked to that we thought oh there's some interesting answers for some people here and you know not every book not every tv show not every um not every movie not every ted talk not every podcast is going to answer everybody's questions, nor do I think that everything can be everything to all people. And I think that things can be valuable without being totally comprehensive. And I think that our true goal here was to tell the stories of these women that we had known over a 25-year period from a place of both history and intimacy so we had we had access to a little bit more of their inner lives than if we were say a stranger journalist interviewing them and to hear their stories and to be able to share their stories with readers we think gives people a glimpse into these sort of you could say ordinary women's lives i mean some of them are superstar rock star ambitious people some of them are less so and they are they are a subset of people that we knew at one time that tells a story of our lives, really. This book's, as you know, this book's very, very personal to us. And that we think it may happen to resonate with some other women, too, who consider themselves career ambitious, who are educated and who are kind of struggling just to get it all done and figure it all out, which which doesn't answer the questions of all of the atrocities that we have to face in the world today. But I think you can do both. You can question where you are in the world existentially, and also understand that you have privilege and talk about issues that are germane to your life and do both of those things, and they can both be true and can both be valuable at the same time.
1: And then in terms of uh, you were just saying that some were more ambitious than others, did you also kind of arrive at a different definition of ambition? And I know it's always a big challenge to define even success, right? Does success mean the big job? Does success mean you are getting to pick your kid up from the school bus? You know, I'm conflicted with all of this because I feel like, on the one hand, I like the fact that I think women are a bit more thoughtful about wanting to have a balanced life. On the other hand, I want more women to make more money because in a capitalist society, money is power. And it's not a good thing for all the money to be held, the vast majority of the money to be held, and the wealth to be held by men. Because that means they have the most power and influence and we get the kinds of policies and situations that we're having when um, we don't have a balanced power structure. So <laughs> I'm like, women, make more money, make more money. Oh, wait, you you want to be able to hang out with your kid after school? Okay, I get it. But I want you to make more money. Um, so I know like ambition, like you said, could mean a lot of different things. Like, so what was kind of the thought process and learnings that you got about ambition and success and, and how to define it? Um, so I want to come, I want to talk about that in a
2: minute. But I also want to say that one of the conclusions that we came to in our book is that that men need to change. So, yes, that is a definition of, you know, you want—money is power. And I think we sort of came to this project being like, why aren't there more, you know, women senators? And why why aren't there more female CEOs? And we came away feeling like maybe that's because that's not everybody's definition of success. And that's not what ambition looks like for everybody. And that if we as a society can think more broadly about ambition and success, that that will open the door for men to take on more of the roles at home. And that in a truly equal and balanced society, we would all be sharing these these roles equally, right? So when we first started doing these interviews, you know, as I said, we were looking kind of for answers for like, was there somebody who had this figured out? and i think we were coming very much from a place of success is career success and ambition looks like career ambition and we were very surprised when so we when we first started contacting our friends we sort of thought well everybody probably is much more successful career wise than we are um that was the whole point was to like find out how other people did it and all the great things that they did and what we found was that a lot of them had lives that looked a lot like ours but when we talked to them They didn't come across as people who were not ambitious. They, in fact, still seemed very ambitious. They just didn't direct that ambition into their career or not 100 percent into their career. So what we found is that ambition takes a lot of different directions and can go in a lot of different ways, one of which is career. But other things that you can be ambitious around are your children and your family and volunteer work and – wanting to train for trail marathons. Um, There are a million different things that you can be ambitious about that are not just I want to get more promotions.
1: I love this goal of having – men shift more to the flex lifers, right? Because I don't actually want us all to have to work a million hours and not see our families and not see the sunshine and not get to exercise or, you know, it would be better if we had a more balanced life. And I know we talked uh, in the last time about how the structures of our society don't allow that to happen, right? There's the way that the schools are set up. Everything is set up in a way that actually presumes a one-earner family, which makes absolutely no sense. And it's probably why we're all struggling so much, right? Like if school gets out at 2.30, what— In what universe does that make sense? It makes sense in the 1960s Beaver Cleaver universe, you know? So, yeah, but, I mean, it seems like I'm seeing with the younger men that they want to, first of all, they want to be more involved with their children, which I think was also a case of our generation. But they also, they want to have a good quality of life, you know? They want to have a balanced life. So, actually, I'm kind of hopeful that, men driving these demands will end up benefiting women as well, because they're more likely to get it, frankly, in a patriarchal society. <laughs> um, if they, you know, because one of the big causes of the of the pay gap is the flexible hours, and if men want them too, then, hey, you know, that'll help with a lot of these things. So I think it's important to make this point that all of our lives would be better. Women's lives will be better, but men's lives would be better also if we could switch to everyone sharing equally in all the roles, but there's all these structures of our society that need to switch to make that happen also. Well, I think we're out of time. I encourage all to go out and get the ambition decisions, what women know about work, family, and the path to building a life, ideally from your local bookstore if you have one. (laughs) But of course, it's on Amazon. Is there somewhere for um, our listeners to kind of keep up with you guys and your work on, on the Internet? There's an Instagram place or any kind of social media or website that they should go to? Um, I
2: mean, you can follow us. on. We're both on Twitter and Instagram. Our publicist makes us do it. <laughs> we also like it. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um,
0: and on Twitter, we're at Lizard Wallace with one Z. And
2: I'm at Hannah Shank. You're just going to have to look up the spelling of my (laughs) names.
1: It'll be on our website, womenkillingit.com. So thank you so much. Congratulations. And um, congratulations on on your publication of your book. And everyone, take a read and get some guidance and know that you're not in it alone with the complicated challenges of navigating motherhood and womanhood and careers. Thank you, Thanks, Sally. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.